Hello, this is the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Russell. I am a mom of four children with OCD and other anxiety disorders, a wife of a husband with OCD, and a former elementary school teacher. This podcast is about learning to untangle our thoughts and worries, and then sharing this understanding with those we love. It's also going to be about the transformations that can occur when we invest our time and resources into making connections, being vulnerable, and ultimately finding healing for ourselves and our family. You can expect to hear from me each week. I will share with you actionable steps you can take to untangle your anxiety and live a more free and empowered life. I'll be bringing on guests, both people just like you and me, that walk the road of anxiety every day as well as mindfulness, parenting, and mental health experts. I started this podcast because several years ago, I could have really used someone to connect with who understood what I was going through, something to remind me I wasn't alone during those days when my family was so lost in the labyrinth of anxiety. I hope you learned something, let go of the guilt you are carrying, and find more peace and resilience. Now take a deep breath. It's time to start untangling anxiety. Hey, welcome to the podcast today. I am super excited about today's episode. And to be honest, I like I feel super nervous about it too. I think um, we're talking about scrupulosity, which is religious, a form of religious OCD. And I just think it's it's tricky. It's really tricky to talk about, to describe. It's one of I feel like one of the hardest forms of OCD that I have worked through with my family members. So like I said, I'm super excited because it's been a life-changing piece of information, but I also understand that it is super sensitive. So stick with me um, and we'll we'll get through this. And um, I'm super excited. Before we started, I wanted to introduce you. If you have not heard, coming January, I am starting a live course. It's called the Anxiety Relief Technique Course. And it is an eight-week long course that can help you or a loved one you and a loved one with OCD and anxiety disorders. We're going to start on January 15th. Every week, we'll have a live coaching call where I'll teach you concept. Each week, I will be meeting with each of you individually and talking about your specific needs. And um, we'll also have a live or a private Facebook group. And on that Facebook group, I will be there every day motivating you, teaching you, kind of seeing how you're doing, your ups and your downs. Um, I'll try to bring on some other experts so we can really just find the most support for you. So I would love for you to get into that. I'll have a link in the show notes. So take a look at that. All right. So like I said, we're going to talk about scrupulosity, a form of OCD. And I'm sure most of you know, but just a disclaimer, I am not a therapist. I am not a counselor. I do not have any sort of official documentation of training in the mental health field. I was trained as a teacher, so I do have a degree in teaching. I am a mother and a wife of OCD sufferers. I have been to over 100 hours of therapy and support meetings, uh, plus hundreds of hours that I have put in in my own studying. And then I have put in daily hours of work and studying and practicing these tools that I teach and that I share with you. And many of them have been 
taught to me firsthand from professionals. Okay. First of all, let's explain what scrupulosity is. And I got a a lot of this kind of technical information from the International OCD Foundation. They say that scrupulosity is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, involving religious or moral obsessions. So people with scrupulosity, I will oftentimes in this podcast talk about it and call it scroop. So people with scroop are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. Like I said before, this episode is personally important to me. Uh, and the knowledge that I would love to share was absolutely life-changing for me and my family. It was the first step in my husband receiving an OCD diagnosis. So he does have scroop. I remember reading an article that my mom sent me about scrupulosity. I went into my email and um, I searched scrupulosity. And here comes, as I was preparing for this, here comes this email from my mom. And it was dated March of 2021. I remember when I got that email and she sent it to me when Mark was really, really struggling. And she said, does this sound like Mark to you? I read it and I was shocked. Just about every word describes some of the things that I knew Mark struggled with. It is written by a woman named Whitney. I will also leave the link to this article in the show notes. Whitney tells the story of growing up in a faith-filled home. She was taught Christian principles, and she felt tremendous love from those principles. Over time, however, she said that her mind morphed the principles that she'd learned to crushing ideals that she could never reach. Whitney had served a mission for her church, and she was currently serving in her congregation. She had received answers to her prayers that God and Jesus were real and that they loved her. Why then, she asked, am I miserable, weak, lonely, and convinced of my absolute spot in hell? She said that the answer came as a shock after her husband encouraged her to find professional help. And with time, they learned that she was experiencing a form of obsessive compulsive disorder called scrupulosity. When you hear someone say OCD, what first comes to your mind? I think (laughs) if you've heard me talk, maybe the things that come to your mind are a little bit broader, but I know when I first thought of OCD, I thought about excessive hand washing or like color coordinating a bookshelf or being obsessed with things being just in the right order or your clothes looking perfect, things like that. While these behaviors can be signs of OCD, as we know, these behaviors are not OCD. Okay. So Whitney in her article discusses a lot of what I talk about. And in episode eight of this podcast titled, What's Going On Inside Your Brain and How how to take back your life from anxiety. I talk about the worry loop and what we know is happening is that OCD has something called intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts also can be called obsessions, which is the O part of the acronym. Those obsessions, you know, when we have a trigger of a fear, they lead to increased anxiety. And then we also know in that worry loop, in order to decrease anxiety, we as humans oftentimes perform physical or mental rituals, which is the compulsions or the C part of the acronym, in order to decrease that anxiety. And then we also know that all those compulsions do is actually feed the anxiety and make it worse. And in order to break that worry loop, 
it's the compulsions. It's actually we're breaking both the obsessions and the compulsions with facing our fears. We also know OCD does take on many different themes. And I will talk more about these different themes as we go on in the podcast. But perfectionism is definitely one. Organization, germs, and then even, like we're talking about today, religion. Just like many others, Whitney from this story thought OCD exhibited mostly in these outward compulsions. She was not as aware of the obsessions. Interestingly, OCD can happen entirely in your head. So that is what can be so tricky about OCD and and diagnosing it, you know, just from a layman's perspective, you know, just as family members and things like that is so much of it could be going on in your own head or in the head of a loved one. And you're not seeing those compulsions that we stereotypically have assigned to OCD. So for Uh, Whitney, the anxiety that she felt, like the obsessions that were happening were if she was reading her scriptures correctly, uh, how well, or the fact that she was not understanding the spirit, the Holy Ghost, um, the Holy Spirit, however you want to call it, understanding God speaking to her or her need to over-apologize. Okay, so what did this actually look like for Whitney? Whitney talks about some experiences that she had. For instance, she said that she pled with God when she was 19 years old to know if she'd been forgiven for things from her childhood. Or when she went, I told you she served a mission. And on that mission, she had like a mission leader that was over that was over her and, you know, kind of like her quote unquote boss, ecclesiastical leader. She found herself confessing to this man, um, her ecclesiastical leader, for the same thing that she'd confessed to multiple other ecclesiastical leaders when she was 12 and 16. And she just wanted to be sure. Even the morning before her husband and her were married, she begged God to know if she was forgiven of those same things. Again, she said when she would pray that she'd stop and restart because she wasn't on her knees, or she said something without using the proper language of thee and thou. So the way in which she was praying had to be a particular way. Whitney says, while OCD looks different for everyone, one similarity among us all is that the more we act on intrusive thoughts, the worse it gets. So as much as our over-repentance and re-praying seemed to calm anxiety momentarily, the rituals left her living the gospel with a relentless OCD God. So she was living her religious life, trying to seek happiness, but she was doing it not through the God she believed in, but through this OCD God. And like I said, Mark, my husband, struggles with similar obsessions and compulsions. Mark also served a mission for our church. For two years, he was in a foreign country, walking the streets, knocking doors, looking for people that were searching for the gospel that he shared. He believed. He taught about forgiveness, God's love, repentance, mercy, faith, and hope. He believed all that he taught was true for everyone else. His relentless OCD God told him all these things did not apply to him, and he felt destined for hell. A few of Mark's obsessions were excessive worry about forgiveness and feeling like his sins piled up. He felt like God kept track and had a list of all of his sins. If he committed a sin, then repented, then committed it again, all of the previous sins would return 
to his imaginary ledger. He would worry about his religious practices and if they were good enough. Some of Mark's compulsions, so what I said before, obsessions or what's going on in his head, these compulsions were the outward practices that he would do. He would excessively pray. He'd stay on his knees for long periods of time waiting for reassurance that he was forgiven. And he tried to be perfect in all of his dealings, in everything moral. He tried to be perfect in order to gain reassurance that he was worthy. I actually only knew about some of these at the time. And the one that was the kicker for me was that sin ledger. (laughs) When he told me that, I immediately knew we needed help to unravel this. We brought it up with his therapist, and after a few more discovery sessions, our therapist recommended Mark look into the OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center. I will also leave a link for that. That center changed our lives. While going to therapy, Mark learned, like Whitney, to face his fears. He learned that the more he listened to his OCD and obsessions and gave into compulsive behaviors, the worse he would get. And the more he worked towards facing those fears, the closer he would actually feel to God. All forms of OCD are brutal, and Scroop is no different. OCD will always attach to areas of our life that are important to us. So in some ways, it's easy to see why Scroop exists in the world of OCD especially with those of us that claim to and feel religion and our faith to be important to us. Someone with Scroop doesn't have to necessarily be religious, but most commonly they are. Scroop can also attach to our moral beliefs that may be outside of any religious standards. Okay, so let's get a little bit technical here. What are the symptoms of scrupulosity? We've we've talked about um, a lot of these in, in the examples with Mark and Whitney. I'm going to rattle off a few more uh, just to kind of give you a broader perspective. So common obsessions, like I said, things that are going on in your head. So blasphemy, having committed a sin, behaving morally, purity, going to hell, death, or a loss of impulse control. Some of those behavioral compulsions, so those practices that people with OCD participate in, excessive trips to confession, repeatedly seeking reassurance from religious leaders and loved ones, repeated cleansing and purifying rituals, acts of self-sacrifice, avoiding situations, for example, religious service in which uh, the person with OCD believes a religious or moral error would be especially likely or cause something bad to happen. There's also mental compulsions, so things that we don't see that are going on in our head, excessive praying, sometimes with an emphasis on the prayer needing to be perfect. That's like what we talked about before. Repeatedly imagining sacred images or phrases, repeating passages from sacred scriptures in one he- one's head, and making pacts with God's group, as with a lot of other types of OCD, is tricky. Behaviors or thoughts can seem like good practices, but they can take on this twisted and unhealthy turn when it's controlled by OCD. So for example, repeating a passage of scripture in your head or confessing or being very conscientious about sin can all seem rather admirable to a lot of religious believers. I've heard adults praise peers or children for worrying about being good or confessing excessively, and a lot of religious people practice memorization of scripture. So where does it turn into OCD? How do we know if someone has stepped over the line into scrupulosity? Let me share a few more examples and also some tools that my family and I have used to combat scroop. So as I mentioned before, my husband has scroop. So do a few of my children. And on a side note, just being in a household of scrupulosity has rubbed off on me too. 
I don't have the same intensity of feelings and anxiety as my loved ones, but I occasionally encourage myself to practice some of these tools as well. So the following are examples. Each individual with scrupulosity or any kind of OCD or anxiety disorder will have varying fears, obsessions, and compulsions. These are a few examples. So one that I've seen firsthand has to do with modesty. So modesty is taught as both a moral and sometimes religious standard. Modesty or the lack thereof has also been tied to sexuality and sin. Whether old or current, these standards are still somewhat mainstream in a lot of religions. My eight-year-old daughter, Ivy, has scroop. It comes in the form of modesty for her. We've taught Ivy certain standards about dressing appropriately. And actually, in some cases, we have taught her from a place of scroop unknowingly. If an individual is taught that dressing modestly is linked to purity and that this individual does not have OCD or isn't taught from a place of OCD, then they may be able to successfully find a balance between self-expression and modesty that they're comfortable with. That individual without OCD may also be able to easily understand and view others and possibly see their in their opinion, their lack of modesty with little or no discomfort. And they might be able to live their own standards and not worry about what other people are choosing to do. On the other hand, an individual with OCD may not be able to do these things. They may have tremendous guilt and shame tied to even thinking about being immodest. They may feel like they have committed a sin they may also have tremendous discomfort seeing others dressed immodestly. Before Ivy went to therapy, she was extremely uncomfortable seeing fully mature women wear just a sports bra and leggings out in public. And she also hated seeing men without their shirt on. Grown men. It was super uncomfortable for her. Like, not just, uh, you know, like a regular discomfort. You could see the intensity of her discomfort. It would almost like she'd almost, she would have a physical reaction to it. Like I've spoken about in previous podcasts, these two choices of attire are completely appropriate in everyday settings. We see men without their shirt frequently. We see women even more today, like I said, just in like our modern dress code, if you will. Sports bras are completely appropriate and leggings for people to wear. Ivy was super uncomfortable with it though. So what did Ivy's therapist recommend to help her overcome this extreme discomfort? Exposures or opportunities to face the things that she feared the most. So first, behavioral compulsions. These are the things someone with OCD feels compelled to do, right? In order to lower their level of discomfort in a situation that creates a lot of fear. Ivy's common behavioral compulsion was avoidance. She would look away if she saw someone that was dressed appropriately, but she felt was too immodest. So she would face that fear by doing the opposite of avoiding. She would look. And how did we do that? She would watch fashion shows, particularly swimsuit fashion shows, both men and women. And we still do that today. Her fear of all of this and her discomfort has lowered drastically. But like I've said before, we keep returning to and facing these fears to make sure that those fears don't come back. And on a side note, this is one of this was one of Mark's exposures too. <laughs> so so my husband and my eight-year-old daughter would watch fashion shows together. Something else that we would do is my older daughter, Olivia, had certain people that she followed on Instagram that she knew 
often took pictures and posted pictures in bikinis or, you know, things like that, that were, that were okay. Like Olivia would check with me and be like, mom, is this okay? Can I show her this account? And I, and I'd say yes. And so she would have to look at, at, at those accounts specifically Ivy had trouble even seeing cleavage that was uncomfortable for her. We also would walk through the underwear section of stores, and we still do this today, and look at the pictures of women in underwear. We wouldn't stop and look. We would go about our normal, regular activity of shopping, but we would purposefully not avoid walking through that section and not avoid or turn away from looking at those pictures. One clarification to make, I kind of alluded to this with the Instagram account, something that our therapist always recommended for us and made sure was happening was that everything that we did, all of the ways in which we faced our fears had to line up with our morals. So I would not allow my eight-year-old daughter to view some kind of material that I felt was inappropriate for an eight-year-old girl to see. Same for Mark. Mark can ch- could choose what type of fashion show that he would watch that that lined up with his standards. So he would, he and or Ivy would choose things that would make them uncomfortable, but that were not contrary to their standards. I hope that makes sense. So that's something I always appreciate because as we're talking about this, when, when we first started talking about this, and I'm sure to some some that are listening, they think that that's like super uncomfortable. That's weird. And really facing your fears and these exposures can seem weird, but they work. They absolutely work. And like I said, they always can always, you can always choose for them to line up with your moral standards. That is absolutely 100% um, a large focus. Another example uh, would have to do with excessive and compulsive confessions. So I have a really, really good family friend that he feels it's necessary to confess every little sin to their ecclesiastical leader or parent or a trusted loved one. Mainly they focused on a parent or ecclesiastical leader. So they would do this with the hope that they would receive clear assurance that they're forgiven. This is absolutely unnecessary and impossible to fully achieve. It's unhealthy and it is one of kind of a a very common compulsion for group. So how would we combat this kind of group with exposures? Limit the opportunities for confession and ask the leader or whoever is being confessed to, to not reassure the individual of their forgiveness. Anxiety and OCD are craving and seeking certainty. The more we feed into that certainty, the stronger the OCD becomes. So the natural response to someone who is seeking forgiveness is to tell them that they are forgiven. When the appropriate response for someone with OCD is actually, maybe you're not forgiven. Answering with the opposite of what OCD wants is what helps reduce the effects of anxiety and OCD. Once again, it seems contrary. It seems odd. It seems uncomfortable but it works. Keeping things uncertain and training our brains to stop seeking it is the only way out of that worry loop that I've talked about. So stopping the constant and continual reassurance to the individual that they are forgiven will help them to train their brain not to need it anymore and to become comfortable with that uncertainty. Maybe is a common word in our house. Maybe 
you made a mistake. Maybe you aren't forgiven. Maybe you didn't do enough. Maybe you did something bad. Maybe someone will be mad or disappointed in you. Maybe God disagrees with what you did. We keep it uncertain. It seems cruel and it can feel cruel, yet it works. I told you, even I, living in an OCD household, have taken on some of these false beliefs. So here are a few things. I have avoided walking my young boys through the underwear section of Walmart or Target. Before therapy, I knew Ivy was uncomfortable with it, and I'd avoid it for her too. I used to worry about how and where I would pray. I would worry about how meticulously myself and my kids dress for church. I would worry about how long I prayed, and if I did it every day in the same faith format. This knowledge has taught me that, first of all, underwear isn't bad or evil. The human body is a beautiful and magnificent thing, and that each individual has freedom of expression. I can teach my children the beauty in that, and that we all wear underwear and swimsuits, and we can all be comfortable looking at men and women in those settings. Second, I can pray anywhere. My favorite place to pray is on a walk. I love it. I would have never known the beauty and connection I feel with God had I stayed in my narrow mental framework of needing only pray in certain ways. And third, letting go of what we looked like when we went to church was so liberating. Just because my kids or me are a little grubby one week does not mean we don't love God. He knows. Maybe others will think differently. Maybe God will be disappointed. Maybe we fell short that week. Maybe. Several weeks ago, my adult daughter Olivia sent me a post that was shared on the stories of another young adult that she follows. It read, anxiety isn't a sin. It's a signal alerting you it's time to pray. I immediately felt feelings of anger, frustration, and sadness. Yes, anxiety is definitely not a sin. This quote for someone who doesn't have OCD or other anxiety disorders can be beautiful and hopeful and reassuring. Yes, it's not a sin. And yes, if we are feeling anxious and we don't have OCD or an anxiety disorder, prayer can can sometimes alleviate that anxiety. But after all we've talked about today, can you see how someone with OCD could crumble with this statement? Someone with OCD, especially someone who does not know they have OCD or does not know what to do about it, may read this and think, okay, I feel like crap and I just can't shake these anxious feelings. But maybe if I just pray more, then maybe I'll feel better. Maybe I'll pray one one more time every day and just keep doing that. Or maybe I'll time myself and make sure I pray X number of minutes every day. Or maybe I just need to make sure I'm completely forgiven before I pray. Maybe my worthiness is why my prayers aren't working. I must not be doing enough or doing something wrong. That's why my prayers aren't working. That's why I still feel anxious, even though I've been praying. And then I'm sure one of the next thoughts would be, what's wrong with me? No, none of this is right. None of this will help with OCD and anxiety disorders. Praying may help someone of faith that does not have a disorder. I am a faithful person and prayer oftentimes does work for me. I've come to understand that assuming it will work for anxiety disorders is cruel and uneducated. I know and understand in many cases, this kind of advice is very innocently given. I have given it to my children and my husband way too many times. 
My hope today is that we can start to talk more about this. The information from that post is alienating and trapping those with OCD and anxiety disorders. It is telling them that something is wrong with them, that somehow they are the exception to feeling whatever heavenly help they desire, and that somehow they're unworthy or messed up or too sinful. That is all a lie. In faith settings, we need to be more aware and sensitive to the silent sufferers of OCD and anxiety disorders. We need to show shine a light on the way out. There is a way out. I have seen countless people suffer from the the effects of screw. I have seen them lose faith in God and in themselves. I have seen them feel unnecessary shame and guilt. I've seen them suffer in silence and isolation. We can't have this anymore. Do you see this happening in your congregation? Do you know someone who is suffering? Speak up. Share love and knowledge and light. Please help me reach into those dark spaces and find those that are so desperately calling but their calls are only being answered by their OCD and anxiety, not truth. Okay, here are some practical steps that we can take. First, don't assume. Our experiences are not necessarily the same. Just because something works for you doesn't mean it will work for others. In sermons and small class settings, it would be very helpful to add a disclaimer. Let your listeners know that you are aware of mental health diagnoses that create exceptions and differences. Say something like, this has worked for me. That doesn't mean it will for you. And maybe ask the question, do you know what works for you? What are some other ways that we could think about this topic? Be open listen, not necessarily to solve, but to hear. Number two, think outside the box. Think outside of your box. (laughs) Allow others to discover their way for themselves. Teach principles that you find in your faith doctrine. Stick to the principles and let those you teach discover their own practices and allow for freedom in that. Just like the example I gave of of me, a 40-something-year-old woman discovering how I can best pray, how liberating that was for me, that I was able to get out of the box and discover where I can truly feel God the most in my life. Number three, remember that there may be silent sufferers among you. Be sensitive to that. You won't necessarily say the right thing, but your awareness will do wonders. You'll start to see opportunities for you to serve and lift up and be available when those are suff- when those that are suffering are ready for help. Back to Whitney. She told the story of when they first sought help from family and friends. She says, with the support of my husband, we reached out to close family and friends for support. As they rallied around us, however, my symptoms intensified. We were confused. Wasn't this supposed to help? Little did we know that their well-intentioned encouragement only increased the anxiety fueling my OCD. To explain this, Dr. Deborah McClendon describes, quote, the problem with OCD is when you obey the anxiety, it only relieves the anxiety temporarily. And then the anxiety comes back worse because you're actually reinforcing the anxiety cycle, end quote. Whitney goes on to say, This is why it's important to understand how OCD functions and then explain it to those supporting you. You will need to hear the opposite 
of what your OCD and you want to be told to stop reinforcing your anxiety cycle. For example, if you were to share concerns about not doing enough, your friend or family member may instinctively want to reassure you that you are doing great. But what you really need to hear is, yeah, you might not be doing enough. While this sounds ironic and even discouraging, at first, for someone with OCD, this this is exactly what they need. Someone to reply with uncertainty not reassurances. Okay, so to clarify, to summarize that, if you are suffering from OCD or anxiety, this is a wonderful thing to communicate to those that love you and want to support you, that you need to hear. Sometimes you need to hear the opposite. And for those of us that don't have OCD and anxiety disorders, this is a wonderful tool for us to be aware of. It's very hard to know when we don't know someone's diagnosis, but simply being aware that this is a possibility and looking for patterns of someone continually seeking that reassurance from you, that might be uh, something to talk about, something to discuss with them, and even giving them one of those maybe statements and seeing what happens. And then finally, once again, I guess I already said this, but maybe we need to say maybe more often. I'm sure there's plenty that I have missed in this short overview of Scroop, and maybe it hasn't felt so short to you. Let me know if you have any questions or concerns. If someone you know came to mind while you've been listening and you feel comfortable, send them the link. Remember, my mom took a risk and sent me that article. That information has changed mine and my family's course forever. That article was the catalyst that literally saved my husband's life. It may be a risk. It may also be one that changes your life or the life of someone you love. If you have been touched by this and feel the need for more help, more guidance, let me know. Just the same, it will take courage. But I hope that you have seen from the stories that I've shared how lives have been changed, how lives have been saved. It will take courage, it will take strength, but you are not alone in this. And I would love to help you. And I'm here. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me, Betsy Russell, on the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm so glad you're here and honored that you've taken the time in your busy schedule to join me for honest conversations about anxiety. It brings me so much joy to shine the light on anxiety. Will you leave a rating and review? Just scroll down to the bottom of this episode, hit the five star, and write a little comment about how this has helped you. This helps my podcast get seen and help others. Also, I'd love to see what you're doing while you're listening to this podcast. So snap a selfie and tag me at Untangling Anxiety and post it on Instagram. We'll see you next week.